Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 247. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here is your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 247 you're listening to. My guest today is Justin Coletti. Justin is a mastering engineer and author of hundreds of articles on the art, science, and business of music and sound. And he is also the director of content and publishing at Sonic Scoop. And he also happens to host the Sonic Scoop podcast. So, Host of podcast meets host of podcast. So that's what we have today. Looking forward to bringing you a very, very entertaining interview. Justin Coletti coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So 
head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we could sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, friends, grab your coffee cups. In fact, you might want to grab two coffee cups because I'm going to talk to you about probably one of the most boring topics on the planet, retirement. Okay, so let's just cut to it, right? I know that a lot of you are thinking to yourself, okay, I'm not going to retire. I'm going to work till I drop. There's that group of you. There's also a group of you that owns a crap ton of gear and you're telling yourself, I'll just sell off all this gear when I retire. That'll be my retirement. Here's my prediction. Maybe I'm far off on this, but let's assume that there's a big group of us within a similar generation. We're all going to hit retirement age roughly around the same time. Imagine that. And imagine we all have a bunch of gear. And imagine we all dump that gear on the market all at the same time or within the same time period. What do you think that's going to do to the value of that gear? Now, that's assuming that there is any value in that gear. Maybe 25, 30 years from now, somebody's going to want to pull Tech EQ. I don't know. I have no idea. Or maybe they're going to want a tape machine. Maybe there's some bunch of gear we have that somebody's going to want. Who knows? But do you really want to bank on that? I, I, I just don't think that's a great idea. It sounds like a great idea now, but who knows technologically where we're going to be at. Will there be a call for vintage gear from this time period or older gear that you know is older than all of us? I don't know. And those of you that say that you're going to work till you drop, well, you know, hey, I'm with you. I love what I do, and I bet you all do too. But, you know, not all audio disciplines are going to be kind to us. Those of you who hold boom poles out on film sets, are you really going to be like 70 years old holding a boom pole for a film shoot? Uh, I just don't see it. I just don't see it. And not to mention our hearing. Who knows what will happen to our hearing? Now, there's a lot of older audio people out there uh, who are still working. And I say, that's great. More power to them. But I think they're doing it because they love it. Um, I don't think that they're doing it because, you know, they need the money. So, and I think you know who those people are that I'm thinking of. So here's here's my thought to you. I know the concept of creating a uh, retirement account, if you don't have one, is something that you really give a shit about. Really, it's not a fun topic. And I discovered something long ago that I started talking about long ago, where I found this company called Betterment. They basically make this investment thing in retirement somewhat easy, I will say, because you don't necessarily have to get on the phone and talk to uh, a broker and figure out, I have some money to invest. What what do I do with it? And, oh, there's fees involved. Oh, what is that going to cost? And and I have to fill out all this paperwork and it's just complicated. This thing makes it really simple. And I've tried to turn many friends onto it. I've tried to turn family members onto it. And I just think it's a fantastic thing. So I talked about it in, I don't know, probably 150, 200 episodes ago. And I stopped talking about it. And I realized, you know, it's been a while since I brought this up. So I'm going to bring it up again. You don't have to go to the show notes on this. All you got to do is go to workingclassaudio.com and go to the uh, recommendations page. And there's a link there. I'm bringing this up as a concept because I know for a fact a lot of you are putting it off. And I'm here to implore you to 
pay off your debts, make sure you have three to six months of living expenses in the bank to cover your ass. And then the other thing I'm asking you to do is invest in your future because time is going by. And if you invest, you know, a little bit every month, every year uh, on a consistent basis, you can actually have something for the future. So what you do is you log into Betterment, you create an account and you start investing. There's an app that goes with it. The app puts it front and center in front of you. So you can see how much money you have. This may not be the, the complete solution for you, but it at least gets the concept into your brain now of saving, getting money for retirement. If you get into it and you look around and go, this isn't for me, but I want to do something else, then I've served my purpose here. And I've got you to think about retirement because it's very, very important that you not be struggling for money when you get older, because it's just going to get probably a lot harder for us all as audio professionals, you know, when we're in our 70s or 80s uh, trying to, you know, get gigs. So do this, follow through, save for your retirement, and uh, hopefully you will have enough money in your future to live a comfortable life. So all in an effort to get us all fiscally responsible as audio professionals. I hope that, uh, hope that helps, and I hope that this hasn't bored you to tears, but uh, there it is. All right, so now that we've gotten through that topic, let's talk about something really enjoyable. We're coming up on the five-year anniversary of the podcast. Amazing. We're not quite at 250 yet, but we're almost there. And, you know, quite honestly, I could see another 250 in me. I think I think I can keep going. There has been some times where, honestly, I've thought, I don't know, man. I don't know if I can keep going with this. But really, the interactions I've had, meeting a lot of you, having coffees with you when uh, I have the opportunity, and the messages you send me, messages of uh, that some of you send me that say, you know, oh, you've ins- your show has inspired me. I've learned a lot and uh, has really got me through a tough time or whatever it is. The positive messages you all have sent have really, really kept me going. So uh, it's mutually beneficial, I think. I'm still here and still will be, and I'm going to keep going uh, until maybe, I don't know, we can have this conversation again at uh, 350, 450, 500 shows. I don't know. Let's see. Let's see how long it'll go. Keep listening. Keep spreading the word. Let's just see where it takes us. Yeah. So on that note, let's press on. Let's get to it. Let's talk with Justin Coletti here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me on, Matt. It's an honor to be on. You've had some very cool people on the podcast. I remember hearing about you guys when you first came out, and I said, Working Class Audio, that's a cool name. And here we are. You've been doing this a while now. Coming up on five years. Wow. All right. Congrats, man. I hope to see another five years out of you. Oh, I hope so, too. Sometimes I have those weeks where I'm like, should I keep doing this? And then there's just so many great people to talk to who have good information and and have something to contribute to to our audio community at large. Yeah. Well, one of the most recent ones I listened to, because we were going to have him at MixCon, was Tony Maserati. Uh, I really enjoyed that conversation. I think he got a different angle out of him than I'd heard before. That's a really fun interview for any of you guys who are listening to this who haven't heard it yet. He's yeah, he's an inspiring guy. I'm glad that you you felt like I got a different angle out of out of Tony. I definitely never know what's going to happen. And <laughs> you know, surprisingly a lot of the more um famous guests I have on like Tony, like Butch, Vig, like Chad Blake, mm-hmm. I am utterly shocked afterwards how open 
they can be and yeah. direct. I've, I've felt the same thing. I feel like I'm interviewing you here already, Matt, because I, I do this thing too, where I interview people, but I know exactly what you're talking about. Some of the most successful people <laughs> in audio I've met turn out to be really cool and really like vulnerable. Like they're okay with showing their humanity, their weak side. They're like, they're not putting on airs so much and it's like refreshing and it puts you off guard in a way. It makes you comfortable. It makes you relaxed. I guess you have to be able to do that if you're going to be a good producer. Well, they're, they're all good at what they do. And speaking of good at what they do, you are very good at what you do. Oh, and I, you know, when you interview people as one of the main things you do on a weekly basis to see other people do it, it's, it's fascinating to like, Oh, how does, Oh, well, that's how he's doing that. Ooh. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a good angle. I like that. So I just, I have an appreciation for what you do. And I want to kind of just dig into your, your background first, if you don't mind. I'd sure. like to find out, where did you grow up? Oh, I grew up in New York, just outside of the city in a little town called Dobbs Ferry, New York. That's just a few towns north of New York. So if you're to leave Manhattan in New York City, you drive through the Bronx, and then you take Yonkers, and then you take Hastings, and you take a little town called Dobbs Ferry. So I was there. And let's see, I lived there until I was... 18. When I was 18, I moved out of the house, got a place in the Bronx, and I just wanted a rock. So I was working in a guitar store selling guitars at Sam Ash. I didn't really want the job, but I, I had to have some kind of job. And I turned out to be pretty good at it, selling guitars. And as an 18-year-old kid, it was very annoying. I was the, the second highest rated salesperson in the guitar department there at the guitar store where I was selling. It was a, one of those bigger stores, not Guitar Center, another one. And I just remember after about two years of doing that, I realized that everyone else who just wanted to rock was in college. So I went. And I went to college at a place called SUNY Purchase. It, at the time that I went, was probably one of the five four-year college programs in the whole country that do music production. And now I feel like there's five schools, at least in every state, that have a four-year program in music production. So that's something that's changed. But I remember when I, when I got in, they were letting in, I'm going to use this number again because it's the actual number, five people they were going to let in that semester to their studio production department. So man, I, I studied, I bought every book I could on recording, on audio engineering, so that I could pass this entrance exam and be one of these five people who got in out of the 150 or so they were expecting to apply. And I got in and it turns out that having read all those books, I basically taught myself the first two or three years of the program. So I spent the first couple of years of the program just recording bands a lot, which is a, a great thing. And I think the biggest thing that I got out of the university route was being in that place where people expected you to experiment and to try and to only do okay and to strive and to you know, be connected with other people who are trying to do that same thing. And I would say I have my hangups about the whole college model for learning audio or learning anything. But I think the great thing about it was connecting me with other people my age who are really serious about giving this whole music and music production thing a go. And that was wonderful. I mean, there, I had good professors there who I really liked and admired, but I think that was the single biggest takeaway, being able to sit down and just start making records from a young age. Side note on your, on your guitar story of working at Sam Ash, my badge of honor, I was fired from Guitar Center. Nice. Well, I feel like you're probably in good company. There's probably a, a lot of major dudes <laughs> who are fired from Guitar Center. I bet you if like, Slash and Joe Perry were around today, they'd get fired from Guitar Center. Oh, in a heartbeat. Where did that interest in recording come from for you? Why did you 
sign up for that program. I guess I started late in this whole story then. If we're doing origin stories, I think this will be the only place that there's a Justin Coletti origin story on the web because I don't usually do origin stories, but I'll give it to you. When I was 12 years old, my father bought a four-track cassette recorder. He was an amateur pianist, piano teacher. He, as his main job, taught English in a gifted and talented program in the South Bronx. When the South Bronx was like the murder capital of the world, he was down there, you know, in the 80s, you know, teaching. I remember there was like literally like a drive-by at his school where he was on the news. It was a different city back then, New York very different than the city it is today. But he was, in the after hours, would teach piano lessons. And music was always a big part of his life. It's interesting. My father has perfect pitch. You know, you could he could turn them around and hit like a cluster of three notes in the piano and he'd tell you what each one was. Uh, my mother is completely tone deaf. So I'm somewhere in between. And my dad was really into the stuff. So he got this four track cassette recorder to kind of work on his own compositions and stuff like that in his spare time. And he never learned how to program the VCR. So I'm not sure if he even ever really learned how to use the VCR. So using a four-track recorder was kind of beyond the pale for him. So I kind of inherited it. And I was playing in bands, you know, 12 and 13, playing guitar. And I got really into this four-track recorder because the bands would come over. We'd play uh, two mics, the four-track cassette recorder. So we'd set all the guitar amps up around one mic and then try to tilt it right, just right and balance the volume controls on the amp so you have a good blend. And then you'd take the other mic and try to put it around the drum set until you got into a good position where you had a good blend between kick and snare. And then you had two more tracks. You already had the whole <laughs> band recorded. You had two more tracks you could use. So you could do a guitar solo track, an overdub track, and then learning how to bounce tracks, which then seemed so crazy in advance. Wait, we're going to record these three tracks to another track? How does that even work? Now it seems so simple. But I remember it seeming like just advanced engineering at that point, which it's not. But trying that stuff and just finding it really interesting and just kind of getting lost in that world of sound and being really interested in textures. Man, having that four track is just like, this is what I want to do. How, how can I just do this? Well, fast forward me now to the point where audio as a potential job becomes a reality. Where, mm. do, where do you cross over from, this is interesting, I'm learning about it too. Ooh, I could get paid for this. Well, you know... That probably came about in college. I think when I decided to go to college for it, it was, hey, this is the path to having a career in something. That's what I was told. Now, sadly, there's a lot of people who go to college for things and they don't find a career path on the other side of it. But I basically said, well, if I'm going to go to school for this, it's because that's what I would try to do for a living. So I got professionally oriented while in school. And I would say before that, you know, I felt like high school had prepared me for nothing. I remember being near the end of graduating high school and trying to go through the Penny Saver. This was back when they had paper versions of Craigslist. By us, it was mm -hmm. called the Penny Saver. They were called the Classifieds. And looking through and seeing in the newspaper like how much like a one-room studio apartment would cost and looking and being like, how could I ever afford that? I have zero skills. I could be maybe like a short-order chef. I worked at haagen for a little while. I worked at Dunkin' Donuts for a while. I have zero skills. What do I do? And then I remember I got the job at the Sam Ash selling guitars. I did well at that. I made what was a good income for an 18-year-old. And then I continued working at selling guitars while I was going to school full-time. And then I remember getting my first gig assisting at a studio. Back then, I didn't like the idea of interning, the whole working for free thing. 
coming from a, what I felt like was like a working class background. I didn't like the idea of working for free. It seemed like something rich kids would do, not me. I'm less biased in that way now. And I wrote my first three articles for Sonic Scoop for free. So I'm not as against free work now. But then I didn't like the idea of working for free. And there was one place that would hire me to do hip hop sessions as an assistant for like $15 an hour. So I was there at like two in the morning with guys who were high out of their minds, making all these amateur hip hop records, underground hip hop records. And I started making enough income doing that that I could work part-time at the guitar store. And then in addition to working those late night hip hop sessions, I started finding my own indie rock bands that I could record and charge them like way too little, probably broke down to the equivalent today of less than 10 or $15 an hour, the kinds of rates I was charging. But I got enough work between those two things that I was able to work less and less at the guitar store until I stopped the guitar store. So when I graduated college, I hit the ground running, already making a sustainable-ish income in audio. So I was 22, 23, kind of out of the gate, working with you know small hip-hop artists and small indie rock bands at the very beginning of their careers, making enough money to, to support myself kind of straight out of the gate out of college. And that's the way that I did it. It wouldn't work for everybody, but I worked the whole time I was in college, either at the guitar store or making records. Do you feel that today's emerging audio professionals could repeat that method? Absolutely. I mean, that's probably what I would recommend to anyone is, first of all, have a, I'm imagining that 80 to 90% of people listening to this are going to need some type of job to support themselves. And maybe there's some sliver of people who don't need some kind of job to support themselves. Either, you know, there's a very tiny sliver who have like a trust fund and they're set for life and they just need to find things that inspire them so they're a useful and productive human being and don't feel like their whole life is a, uh, uh, like a, a total waste lost out to sea and they're filling it with drugs and all of that. So that's very tiny number of people. The other uh, number of people, there's some people who have a, a little time in their lives, maybe when they're in college, when their parents will support them. And in that time, I would say, use that. Don't just use it having fun now and going out drinking all the time. Use that time doing more than you're supposed to do in your college. Because I have seen so many people, both as a college professor when I was teaching college and as a college student, and as someone who worked with musicians who majored in something related to music, then they graduate from college and they don't do anything related to music afterwards. That's extremely common. But the one common thread for all of those people who end up actually having careers, I think it's probably, I don't know the numbers, my guess is maybe 20% of the people who went to college for something like music ended up continuing to work in something like music afterwards. The common thread between those people is that they do more than they're supposed to do when they're in college. They do things that aren't assigned to them when they're in college. They also try to be out there working in the field while they're in college. So this is another big portion of people out there who are immediately going to go into some kind of school where they can kind of be supported, not have to worry about supporting themselves, try to do actual work, try to do more than you're supposed to do, try to take on more projects than you're supposed to take on. And then the third and final category is people who need to have a job right now, who are making money at some job and want to transition from having a passion in music or audio to having a sustainable life in music or audio. And those people, it's a similar thing where make it into a side hustle and maybe you do do a few projects for free just for experience at first. But then once you have the experience, charge something, even if it's a little bit. And then hopefully you can displace more and more of your main gig with this passion gig. And that's a, another valid approach. And, and what I did was a combination of those two things. I was both in college doing more than I was supposed to do and I was working a day job and displacing that day job with my, my new, more ideal day job. 
How long did you stay at this one studio that was allowing you to pay your bills and, and working with underground hip hop artists? That's a good question. I'm really not good at answering questions like that. I could give you a, f <laughs> a feeling for how long it was. I remember listening to an interview with Henry Rollins. He's like, I know the date of every single show I've ever played. So in you know, 1985, I was in Milwaukee playing, you know, it started at 8 p.m. I have no idea. I'd have to like, go back through records and try to check, but I I'm going to guess... I did a lot of stuff there for three or four years, and my guess is it was something like that. And then there was other studios that I, I moved to. I do remember when the Great Recession hit, something around like the year 2010, I felt that freelance work was starting to dry up a little bit, where I found myself working longer hours for less money. Maybe it was 2009, you know, shortly after the, the Great Recession. And at that point, I ended up taking, for the first time in my life, an office job, working on Wall Street doing audio stuff for the financial services industry, doing these kind of yeah, webinars. So like companies would do their quarterly meetings and calls. You know, They'd have their board meetings with all their investors and stuff and running the audio and, and video stuff for that. And I did that for one year because I, I had this thing where I was like, let me try this whole regular job thing. I've always assumed having a regular job isn't for me and working in office seems like a whole silly artificial environment. But let me give it a shot at this time when it is a little harder and a little bit, the money's a little scarcer making music. So I tried that and I found out that all of my instincts were correct and I, I can't work in, in an office environment. It's amazing, man. If you've ever worked in a conventional office environment, what do people do all day? My goodness, if in an eight hour day, people do 30 minutes of work, I'm amazed. It's totally changed my mind on productivity and how people actually work. I mean, given any eight hour work day, even if you feel like you're working really hard, how much of that time is really productively spent and how much of it is wasted? And if you want to see time wasted, try a conventional office environment. You know, it's funny you brought up Henry Rollins. Yeah. You know what you and Henry Rollins have in common? What's that? You both worked at haagen -Dazs. That's true. That's true. I worked at both haagen and Carvel, and I worked at a Dunkin' Donuts. So I had my fast food service jobs when I was a teenager. And I've got to tell you, I feel like everyone should work some type of food service job at some point in their life. It just teaches you respect for the people out there who are helping you, you know? It's an honest way to, to make a living, and hopefully you don't do that for your entire life. But I think it's a, it's a phase everyone should do it at least once. I wanted to ask you just a few more questions about that corporate thing. Now, the egos are just so immense that, and I don't know if it's just my own insecurities, but having been in those environments to some degree, there's always the suits, and then there's mm -hmm. the technical guys who are looked at as like some kind of servant. There are definitely distinct groupings of people where if you were in the sales team, you're a certain type of person. There are certain commonalities. If you're in the tech team, you're a certain type of person. If you're in the exec team, you're a certain type of person. You ever see the show Fraggle Rock, like when you were a kid? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if this is too old school of a reference. I'm making myself seem old. So for those of you people who don't know anything about Fraggle Rock, just search it in the Google machine. I'm sure you'll get a lot of stuff. But there were like two breeds of people that are like the Fraggles who were like the hippies. I don't know what the Fraggles did for a living, but they were the main characters. And then there were the dozers who wore hard hats and did all of the work. And they were like two distinct types of people who do, did two distinct types of work. And you saw a little bit of that in the corporate environment. Like the tech people were like their clique and they had their mannerisms and their way of dress. The salespeople were a different clique. There was definitely that vibe. And it's weird, but one of the things I wanted to, 
I still have a little bit of an artist mind, even though I don't have any inclination to be an artist professionally. I always had that, you know, songwriter, fiction writer part of my brain where I'm like, I want to understand how people live. And that was one of the other things I liked about the idea of having a corporate job for a year was, let me just see how this part of the world operates. It's the same reason I, I always wanted to go to jail at some point in my life, which I successfully <laughs> did by riding my bicycle on a sidewalk in New York City. And I was like, oh, great. I finally get to go to jail and see what this is all about and what people are like in here. You don't have to do this stuff, people. This is silly, but I went to the corporate environment for the same reason I wanted to go to jail, to see what these weird and different people who are a surprisingly normal, large portion of the population do and are like. And I don't know, it just made me understand the world slightly more and I can be slightly more relatable to a slightly larger portion of the population. You got to work that into your bio somehow. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't really talk about that that much, but it was fun. I was the first person in jail that day. So when the first guy came in, I was like, hey, what's up, man? How are you doing? What are you in for? <laughs> He's like, oh, man, you know. They said I was selling heroin, but I wasn't. So me and him started talking. We had this thing going. So this was the greatest thing about it. So then when the next guy, because I got arrested like 10 a.m. in the morning. So then when the next guy came into the jail cell, this guy, what was his name? It was Lopez. So me and Lopez were there talking. So when this next guy comes to the jail cell, I go over to Lopez. I tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, Lopez, there's a new guy in here. What do you think? Should we say hi? And I said, hi. So we started talking to this guy. We had him like in our clique. So then we had this clique of like three guys. So each time a new guy came in, we had that thing going. And I really felt like the mayor of the jail cell. I, w I really felt like it was like a totally Ferris Bueller's day off kind of experience. It was the most non-threatening, like fun time. And it was interesting that I was able to turn into that. Now, I'm sure that a lot of people have had terrifying and horrible experiences going to jail. And I don't recommend it to anyone. And I don't think you're necessarily going to have a Ferris Bueller's day off experience if you go to jail for some trivial crime. So please don't. But for some reason, it worked out that way. It was an extremely odd day. With, I don't know. Did our audience care about this stuff? You tell me. And you see, I'm hardly saying a thing because I'm just like, wow, tell me more about that. <laughs> <laughs> you were networking in jail is what you were doing. Basically, yeah, 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 yeah. But at the same time, it seemed like a little bit of a social experiment to you. Yeah, absolutely. One of the reasons I was able to connect those people legitimately interested in their stories and like what got them there and what their lives were like. And also in that environment when you're just kind of like in city jail waiting to like go before the, the judge to see whether you go out or whatever, it's a different environment than being in like prison. Jail and prison are two very different things. That said, oh, yeah. there's some pretty lightweight prisons that, you know, if you're, you, you end up in a white collar crime prison, you know, you, you basically go and play tennis for, for quite a while is my understanding of it. But there's like hardcore prison situations where, I don't know, I wouldn't take that approach in them. Let me just say that. Have you ever watched any of those videos on YouTube of these guys that are giving advice because they've spent like the early part of their world yes, in prison? Yes, absolutely. I started watching some of those videos recently, like just the past month. Maybe it's a, a wave that we're both experiencing at the same time. But just recently, I started watching some of those and it was very interesting stuff. But it was like, I almost felt like I went a little too deep down that rabbit hole and had to had to stop because it's like, some of these people have a very different view of the world and humanity and than I do. And it's shaped by their circumstances, I'm sure, to a, a large degree. And it's a position I hope to never find myself in. Yeah, and I, I feel like if you spend your time watching that, will that become your reality at some point? You know, mm -hmm. I think I'd rather spend my time listening to our fellow audio professionals talk about their thing. Yeah, I, I really do think that, that, you know, there's, I don't know if there's any science to back this up, but there's that saying that you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with, whether that's 
all causal or not, I don't know. Maybe because you're a certain type of person, you hang out with the five people you hang out with the most. But there's also social reinforcement saying the ways that you're acting are correct and all of that. So if you are spending a lot of time, even if it's virtual time, with people who you don't want to be, there is some chance that you're more likely to become a person like that or have that aspect of your personality reinforced. So one of the great things I think about what we do is we're able to connect people, even if in a virtual way, with people who they wish they were more like, you know, who they want to take something out of their lives. When I'm talking to the the higher end guests on the show, like the bigger names or whatever, the people who have had greater successes in, in ways that, you know, people can eventually define them. I don't want to say I'm in awe of them because they're normal people and they have things about their lives that I wouldn't want in my life. But in each one of them, there's some nugget that I can learn and take into my own life. And I can also learn from, you know, some of the things that went wrong for them. You know, recently I had a few guests on who really talked about how they didn't have work balance right when they were young and needed to kind of reframe their approach as they got older. Really successful people who said, I was working too hard, too many hours, and some of them weren't productive, and I've since found better ways to work. And then they get to share those ways of working with us. And man, I'm doing a lot of this for my own edification, talking to these people because I want to take something (laughs) out of it. And I know that if I feel that way, some people in the audience have to. And I'm sure you feel maybe a similar way with some of your guests where you want to get a piece of what they've done right and then share it with other people too. You've hit the nail on the head. I cherry pick from every single guest I talk to. Mm -hmm. There's some aspect to what they've done in audio and no matter what the audio discipline is, there's something about them. It's too bad that if you were to go to jail, there's not an audio click that you could hang out with. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to keep bringing it back to the jail yes. thing. I, I was super lucky that I was the first guy in there. Oh, and here's a, a PSA. Empty out your cell phone messages because you get like the call. You're supposed to be able to call someone from jail. Like I'm like, can I get my one call or whatever, you know? So uh, I do get on the phone and I call my brother to see if he could come down like with some cash or bail me out or something so I wouldn't have to stay there overnight, which I ended up doing. He did not answer the phone because his voicemail box was full. So empty out your voicemail boxes, people. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. So (laughs) let's transition from jail to some other topics. Do you currently work over at Joe Lambert's place? I work through Joe Lambert Mastering. So in, you're going to ask me years again, and I can't tell you, somewhere between 2013, 2014, 2015, did I start mastering in this place? I want to say it was 2013, but I I literally have to look at my own LinkedIn to find out. So I started mastering at his place. I had made the transition from mixing to mastering. Maybe we can talk about that at some point. But I did all of my mastering at his space because I wanted to be sure that I could do it in an environment that was ideally suited to the task. Because I knew from my own experience working on records that one of the most important things that a mastering engineer brings is the room, the speakers, and the environment. When you're mixing something, it's great to have another set of ears, and particularly a set of ears who's dedicated themselves to that last stage of 
mastering. But another big thing is that they're listening to your music in a room that's ideally suited to the task. And it's a room that's different from your room, that's more revealing than your room, that can tell you more about the problems in the low end and the high end than your own little mixing suite. So I knew I wanted to do it in a room like that. So I did all of my masters there at Joe Lambert Mastering until I moved to New Hampshire in the year of this one, I think I might get right, 2017. And up here, since I'm no longer in New York City, my entire house costs me less per month than my old rent-stabilized apartment in Brooklyn. And my living room is the size of my old apartment. So I get to have a studio here in my house. So anyone who sees me in the podcast, this is one of the additional like office rooms we have in the house because of how much less expensive it is here to have a place. So I have a studio that is really treated in a way to be as good as JLM. So I do all of my unattended sessions from up here. There's a ton of treatment up here. I get to audition all sorts of great speakers because of the connections through Sonic Scoop. So I always have a different set of great speakers in here, which may not be as ideal for mastering as having one set that you really know and love, but it allows me to try out a lot of stuff, which is fun. So I'm in an environment now where I do all of my unattended sessions here, but Joel Lambert Mastering is still basically my management. All of the billing happens. Uh, Diana, our studio manager there, Joel Lambert Mastering, does all of my billing. Any clients who come to me directly, I put them in touch with Diana. Clients come to me through the website. I'm one of the listed engineers on the website. I still do sessions at Joel Lambert Mastering, but only attended sessions in the city. And I would say maybe once a month, I'll be down in the city. My two-year-old's grandma lives down in Tarrytown, New York. So I get to go into New York occasionally, and maybe once a month, I will try to set up a date where I can put in a bunch of mastering sessions attended back and back, back to back together. But I can't do a ton of them. And I got to tell you, 90% of the requests these days for mastering are unattended. So I do the majority from of it up here in like... Joe jokingly refers to it as JLM North. I even have the same color acoustic panels as they have at Joe Lambert Mastering. I'm like, I want to make it feel <laughs> like JLM. So I got like the same burgundy panel. So it, it feels like the same environment. Tell me about that transition that got you into mastering. Because you obviously spent some time as a straight up recording engineer, mix engineer. Yeah, one of the most important things that I can say to anyone who wants a career in audio or music is listen to the market. Like you have to do things that resonate with you and that, you know, speak to your aptitudes. But if you do things that resonate with you and nobody else, that's called being an amateur, which is fine. Being an amateur means doing something for love. That's fantastic. But if you want to be a professional, it means that it's not only what interests you that should drive you, it's what interests other people. And specifically what interests other people enough to give you money. So that's what being a professional means, is that people are willing to give you money for the things you're doing. And I was able to do that with recording and mixing and all of that. But the market was telling me something. People would continue to ask me, hey, Justin, could you master my record? And I'd say, no, I'm a mixing guy. I'm trying to get good at mixing. I'm doing the mixing thing. And after a while, I said to myself, wait a second, why am I saying no? Why am I saying no to work? And maybe people are trying to tell me something about me, about my personality, about what they need. Because when I got into audio, it was cool to be a musician. And it wasn't necessarily like this cool career track to be into audio. But by the time I was getting into the swing of things as a professional, I think being into audio had become like a cool thing. And now people were aspiring to be mixers more so than in generations past. The thing that wasn't as cool that people felt really lost on and they weren't trying to do for themselves was mastering. 
And I think the market pushed me in that direction. I think part of it is also who you hang out with. So when I was young, I had all these friends who were musicians. So it made sense that they wanted someone to record and then mix. But then as I got older, working through Sonic Scoop and just being around the audio scene, all my friends were now audio engineers. <laughs> so now the people asking if I could do something were other audio engineers who needed help with mastering. So for whatever reasons, I just started getting more requests for mastering. So I said, all right, let me do it. Let me hook up with a space that will let me do it there. And Joe and I had a previous relationship. So I started doing it at Joe's place. There was less friction involved in me mastering compared to me mixing. The work was coming without me having to seek it out. People were chasing me instead of me chasing them. And I said, maybe the market and the universe knows something more about what I should be doing than I do. Maybe I should stop listening to myself so much and start listening to other people more because maybe they know something about my talents, my aptitudes, or where I can be helpful. Maybe they know more about that to some degree than I do. And I think that's correct. And I think that there's something about my personality where I just took to mastering better, faster than anything I had done before in audio, which already felt natural to me. As soon as I started doing it, it felt right. And I haven't looked back. And now when people ask me to, on the rare occasions, people ask me to record, mix, or produce something, I refer them to one of my clients, which is also good for business because then they want to bring that client back to you. So that's a wonderful thing. Hey, Justin, are you still recording? Are you still mixing? Can you do my project? No, but one of my clients can. Tell me, you know, what's your project like? Let me hear it. Oh, I know exactly the right person because he sent me five different records. This is the person out of all the people I work with who would get what you're doing the most. I send them the project and then, you know, there's a pretty good chance they come back to me to master it. It works out for everybody. So how much of this is directly related to change of lifestyle for you? You mentioned that you have a two-year-old, you've moved to New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Mastering, especially unattended mastering, is and unattended mixing is fantastic for the lifestyle of a new parent who is generally closer to home. Am I right? Yeah, I, I would say that long before having a kid, and I, I had a kid about two years ago, long before I did that, I figured one of these days I'll probably want to be a parent. One of these days I'll probably want that out of my life. So how can I structure my life to make that not suck? So I think past Justin, Justin of, you know, in his late 20s even, and then in his early 30s. I thank that guy for thinking ahead to how to make life workable for me. And I think that's a very useful thing for, you to, for anybody to do in their own life is to think of like future them as another person who you want to help out. So sometimes like I don't want to, I don't even want to like unload the dishwasher right now, but someone's got to do it. And then I'm like, you know what? You know who will really appreciate if I unload the dishwasher? Future Justin. Because then There'll be actually, that'll be during his work day that he doesn't have to think about it and he doesn't have to have a conversation with his wife and all this stuff. Future Justin would dig that. So if you can like have conversations about how you're going to help out future you, I think that's a big thing. And I think some of the things that I wanted to do for future me was how can I have work that I can do remotely anywhere? Because I did see the writing on the wall in New York City, just how expensive things were and how much more expensive they were going to get and mm -hmm. how many people became slaves to their rent-stabilized apartments that they hated because they lucked into them and felt like they could never leave them and they could never move up. And then how many people became slaves to, to debt or to jobs they didn't want, or whatever it was, that I said, is there some way for me to make more and more of my work remote? So I think that two of the things that attracted me to mixing and mastering and running Sonic Scoop, and really all the things I do now, I could do from anywhere in the world. I could live in South America or you know anywhere, but the wife probably wouldn't go that far, so we're in New Hampshire. New Hampshire, though, is lovely. I'm now a New Hampshire chauvinist. I think it's the best state in the union. <laughs> and I think all of the rest of you are primitive people who don't have a state motto half as good as ours. 
Well, we used to say uh, growing up in New Mexico, the state motto was the land of enchantment, and we used to always call it the land of entrapment. <laughs> oh, goodness. For us, we're the only state in the union that has no seatbelt laws, and we also have no motorcycle helmet laws, and we also have what would be called a constitutional carry, so I could just go to any store I want to and buy a firearm at any time and just carry it on my person with like no paperwork needed. So our motto is a live free or die, and I like to say live free or die, sometimes both. <laughs> <laughs> we do, though, surprisingly, even though we have no seatbelt laws and the, the no gun laws thing, we actually have some of the lowest rates of death from both traffic accidents and firearms in the entire country. It's actually lower, I believe, on both in Canada. So, man, that's wild. But I wonder how the population compares to the other states. Well, we're talking about rate. So our population is lower, for sure. But the population density in New Hampshire is actually about median for the United States of America. My goodness, these little factoids that I know. So we're about middle for population density. There's about 1.3 million people, if I remember correctly, but it is one of the smaller states. So obviously, population density is a heck of a lot less than New York or Illinois or California or whatever, but it's about average for New York. That's, I'm sorry, average for the United States. But that said, the United States compared to a lot of the rest of the world is a fairly sparsely populated place. People don't realize that. A lot of people, unlike you, there's a lot of people in music and audio who've only ever been to California or New York and everything else is just flyover country. They've never set foot in, say, Kentucky or something and seen like, oh, crap, there's a lot of space. Like a whole bunch oh, yeah. of people could move it. We could like triple the population. We'd be fine. You know, when you're living in New York City, everyone's concerned about population. You know what? Go to like half of the rest of America and you'd be like, oh, no, there's room. <laughs> oh, on, yeah. Guys. I mean, I go to Michigan every year because my wife's from Michigan and I've spent a lot of time in Michigan. They got a lot of space. Yeah. Yeah. New Mexico, a lot of space. <laughs> Texas, tons of space. Oh, sure, man. Uh, but I tell you, I, I have to, that's a pet peeve of mine. I do not ride a motorcycle, but I can tell you that whenever I see people, we have helmet laws in California, of course, but whenever I see people without helmets and they're riding their motorcycle and their goddamn flip-flops, I'm like, <laughs> are you kidding me? I really? think it's nuts. I would never do it. I would never do it. I do say... There is something, though, about the seatbelt law I kind of like. First of all, I think you should buckle up at all times, and everybody should. But for those times that I don't, and I drive by a police officer, like if I'm going literally like there's it's three minutes to get to the grocery store, and every once in a while I only buckle my seatbelt like after I've been going for a minute and a half, and I'm like, oh, I should probably buckle it, and then I do. But then like I'll drive by a cop on the way with no seatbelt on, and I'll look over and be like, damn right, it's none of your business. So I kind of, I'm very New Hampshire in that way now. I've become... That, I'm like, it is, I'm an adult. This is a stupid thing for me to do, but it's my own stupidity. And if I were to fly out of the windshield, oh my God, that'd be terrible for my family. Let me buckle my belt. So I do. You know? But I, I like that aspect of it. It is my, my responsibility. I think it's a New hampshire way of looking at the world. Well, you soak in those freedoms, but if I hear of you riding a motorcycle in flip-flops with no helmet- Oh, my I, wife gonna, would kill me. I wouldn't even have time to die on the motorcycle. She, I would come home and I and, and she'd kill me and uh, I would feel terrible because of, can't imagine not being there for my daughter. So I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to let you down, Matt Boudreau. Thank you. That's, that's good. <laughs> All right. Well, I can rest easy now. So through your career, what are the big mistakes? What are the things that you have really screwed up? Oh, my goodness. And I'm not talking like, oh, yeah, I erased all the drums on this. We've all kind of, oops, I forgot to take those tracks out of record on the tape machine. What are the things that you have done that stick with you to this day or that caused a change in behavior to set your audio career 
in maybe a different trajectory? I've got to tell you, man, the biggest things are just ways I could have acted even better with people. And yeah, those are the things I look back and regret is every once in a while I lost, I have so many repeat, repeat clients, which I love, but every once in a while I don't have repeat client for whatever reason. There's a few that I look back on. I'm like, you know what? I just could have been cooler, more understanding, better, less annoying, you know, and maybe I'd still be working with that person. And there's only a few of them I can think of. One of them, I remember the guys from the national, I worked with them doing live sound. Live sound was another big thing that I did, by the way, to support myself while I was working, recording and mixing fairly small bands. Live sound was also a good contributor to my income then when it was only audio. And I would say for people in an area like New York, that is often a good place for consistent work. But I'd work with some of the bigger bands through live sound. So I remember working with the national and they asked me to go become their monitor engineer where, mm. you know, they have the big front house engineer and then you'd be kind of like the second engineer on the road with them. And they really liked working with me there. And then there were two things that happened. Like they asked me, would you want to go on the road with us and become monitor engineer with us? And I said, no. And I always regret saying no to that because I was worried about being on the road for several months at a time. And then in my maybe mid twenties, you know, jeopardizing relationship I was in with that, with a girlfriend of the time who I'm not with now. So I was so worried about jeopardizing that. <laughs> and I didn't go on the road with them. And I, I never got to say, oh, yeah, I, I did the whole touring thing. And this is coming from the guy, remember, who wanted to work an office job and wanted to go to jail just to see what it was like. And I didn't go on the road with like a big touring act, you know, doing monitors and living that whole thing. And I said no to it. I always regret saying no to that. You should have got Lopez from jail to join you. It would have been <laughs> yeah. a fun time. Yeah, he could have done front of house. You would have been an unstoppable team. Yes, yes. So I, I regret that. And then, yeah, every once in a while I regret, you know, my mid-20s, mostly just like the mid-20s thing where you're drinking too much, like after shows and like, you're just not your best self. And then a relationship doesn't pan out as well as it could. Not because you cursed anybody off or whatever, but just because, I don't know, you just weren't the best version of yourself. Those, those are the kinds of things I look at, you know, how I dealt with people and opportunities I turned down. You know, I'm almost 50. I don't know how old you are. Well, you look fantastic. I think I'm 37-ish. Yes, 37. I think I was born 82. But I'm, I'm not going to ask you about specific dates because you, you're not good with that. I remember that I was born 82 because the government asks me every year, but otherwise I would forget. <laughs> One of the things that I've, I'm observing now is, and I spend a fair amount of time around people considerably younger than me who are just so damn smart. Mm -hmm. And I think, man, I wish I was as smart as this person that I talked to when I was that age. And I'll just call out some names of some people that I think that of, and that is Brian David Hood and Chris Graham from the Six Figure Home Studio oh, podcast. Yeah. You know, those two guys are considerably younger than me, and I wish I was that smart when I was mm -hmm. their age. And I learned so much from them. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if, if you're experiencing that at all with other audio peers who are younger than you now. I have almost the reverse thing. I hope this doesn't sound too arrogant, but I am, I'm fairly smart. I know that I test well or whatever, but that is not the be all end all. And I know that I talk to people in audio who are less verbally fluent than me, who maybe wouldn't test as well on a standardized test as I do, who have careers that are so enviable. And they're not these geniuses. But what they do have is the sense of, 
what they should really be prioritizing. They have a tremendous work ethic. So these are the things that I look and envy. And I will say that I know a lot of people who are smarter than me who haven't made the major goals they have in life come true because they didn't have these other skills that sometimes people a little less smart than them have to develop. Mm. And there's this saying that I think is is really a, a good one, and it really is true in music and learning a musical instrument in so many areas of life, that hard work beats talent, especially when talent doesn't work hard. So I think that talent and even intelligence, although they are absolutely assets to have in life, can't do everything. And sometimes they can get in the way by making people not try, by making people not develop good habits. And I know a lot of people who could have been amazing musicians, but they were held back by their talent. And what I mean is that they picked up an instrument, they did pretty well at it pretty quickly, so they never developed good practice habits. So they got to a point where they could be good enough to fool people into thinking they were pretty good, but they never developed the practice habits that others needed to develop, so they never went from pretty good pretty fast to effing great because you devoted your life to it, because you were able to work through frustration. Because this thing that didn't come quickly to you, instead of abandoning it and going on to the next thing that came quickly to you, you stuck with it, you grinded through it, you worked through the hard spots, you were learned to be forgiving of yourself. So that is the thing that I get envy of. And the two guys you mentioned over at Six Figure have both of those things going on. They're really bright guys, but they also know what to prioritize in life. And uh, they also can figure out, hey, what really matters, what doesn't. And they're really dedicated to, to going back and trying to crack that same nut every day. And I find them impressive too. And there's a lot of people out there who are very successful, who, you know, the talent is part of it, but the big thing is all of those other intangibles that they need, whether or not they're talented. Yeah. Also, just in general, I find that I'm encountering some younger people that are just so focused mm. and aren't spending their time going out and getting fucked up, yep. doing drugs and making some seriously bad decisions. Now, that said, I don't regret anything I've done in the past. <laughs> On that level, because, you know, it makes you who you are. Oh, absolutely. And, it, and there's value to that. But it is an interesting thing that I've, I've noticed. Who in your career has really had an impact on you from a mentor perspective? And whether it's in audio or business or life. This is tricky because I grew up, when I was 13, my favorite band was Nirvana, right? And I mean, I had ripped jeans with holes the size of my head in them. And I was into you know Sonic Youth and all this like kind of grungy alternative rock. I was very much into the punk rock ethos as well. And that meant mentorship is lame, man. Mm. And that's something that I regret about my past of not finding people to look up to, that you were surrounded by people who you thought were hypocritical, who weren't good mentors, so you, you, you put your finger up at the idea of mentors, period. And I would say that was my attitude as a teenager. But later in life, I, I realized like, no, man, you've got to find people who you really respect and admire who are, this is a cheesy word, role models. And finding role models later in life, I think, was a, a big thing for me. And the way that I did it was honestly starting to write for Sonic Scoop uh, in 2010. You do the math. It must have been 28 years old then, was finding these little glimpses of, of mentorship, how to get it from every little place. And instead of taking that route of F whatever everyone else is doing, I'm going to find my own path. I said, no, no, no. There's probably something cool about almost everyone's path that I could learn from. 
And honestly, starting to write for Sonic Scoop was an exercise in finding mentors and kind of, I don't want to say it's self-mentorship, but an exercise in finding mentors everywhere. So rather than having a few that were like my long-term people, it was like a whole bunch. When it comes to business, I think learning microeconomics was a big thing. And I'd think my mentor in that, this is the great thing about today is you can find virtual mentors so easily. You can listen to again and again. And for me, one of the, the, the people was in my early 30s, late, late 20s, early 30s was Milton Friedman. And I almost hate to say this because it can be a somewhat politically charged voice because this guy is very libertarian. And I come from, at least as a, a kid in particular, a very left background. I would say I'm neither now. I would think that I'm a, an apolitical creature. But I remember sitting down with him and thinking that everything he was saying must be wrong. And I knew I was going to figure out what was wrong with everything that he was saying. And so I listened to him again and again, just to figure out all the holes in his arguments to tell him while he, why he was wrong. And in that process, I realized that I was wrong about a lot of things. And in fact, he was right about a lot of things. And I don't think he's right about everything in the world. There are things to this day I disagree with him on. But that ability that you can do, and I've done that in so many aspects of life. When I want to get into something like, I started to get some serious dad bod when I had my first kid, so I want to get back into strength training and stuff. So listening to the same voices on strength training again and again, and finding people who are trying a little of different smatterings of voices and then finding one that you kind of lock into and listen to again and again and try to understand everything they understand about the world. And then you, you always have that person that you can kind of take out in your mind and say, okay, here's a question that's being presented. How would this person answer it? How would that person answer it? And I can do this with people in the audio world I've learned from, in the economics world I've learned from, in the physical health world I've learned from. It's good to latch into some people, learn everything they know about the world so you can almost answer questions from their perspective. I think if you've ever read that book, Think and Grow Rich, they call it having a mastermind group. Ideally, you have a mastermind group of people you can meet with and throw around a question on, but you can have your own virtual mastermind group by listening to the same people who you really develop trust and respect for. And even if you don't agree with them on every answer to every question, at least you can conjure up what their answer would be. And having that kind of virtual mastermind is cool. And man, the possibility of getting virtual mentorship is so much greater today than ever before. Is that Napoleon Hill? Who wrote yeah, uh, Think or Grow yeah. Rich? Think or Grow Rich. There's there's some pseudoscience silliness in there, but there's some great stuff in there. And I think two of the things that anyone can take out of that is the exercise that's in there. And like it's one of the first chapters where he tells you to write down how much money you need to make and then how you're going to make it. And every time I've done that, my financial life gets better for like the next year. I probably haven't done that in a year and I should do it again sometime soon, but it's that's a good takeaway. And the whole idea of having a mastermind group is, I think, a huge thing too. I do have a mastermind group that I met with this morning. This is a Friday as we record oh, this. Wonderful. And anyways, that is something I do encourage our audio brothers and sisters to really look into. It's a great thing, whether you talk business, whether you talk audio and audio techniques or gear or whatever it is you're going to do. It's a, it's a real great thing. As long as you keep it consistent and keep a core group of people that you have a common bond with. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. You were talking about your financial picture and how that grows when you kind of focus in on some of these things like writing down a number and et cetera, et cetera. Audio people in general are not always the best Mm-hmm. with money. Brian and Chris with the, at the Six Figure Home Studio, they're trying to do this. I think to some degree, you and I try to do this with people where we're just trying to raise an awareness mm-hmm. to our peers and our friends in audio that this stuff's important. You got to yeah. pay attention to it. The gear is great. The techniques are great. But if you don't mind the business, then it becomes tough and it becomes a struggle and then you end up getting out of audio yeah. and it's a drag. If you do not mind the business, at some point you're going to have no business to mind. That's true. What advice would you have for the people that we're naming here, our friends that may be struggling in audio and we want them to stay in because they're talented people? That they are at an advantage. They're at an advantage when it comes to finances because they come from a place and a background where they get to admit out loud, I know nothing. And that is, if you want to have deep expertise in anything, the biggest thing you, could, you got to start with is I know nothing. And I think that was one of my advantages in learning to get my financial act together is I sat down and I said, I don't even know what a stock is or why someone would buy one. And the funny thing is there's a lot of people who have like careers in finance or went to school in business who also don't really know what a stock is or why you should really buy one or have completely wrong ideas about why they're worth anything at all, but they don't know. Like ask yourself this question, why is money worth anything at all? Whoa. Like, have you ever stopped and thought about a question? You pull out your wallet, maybe there's some paper bills in there if you're old school and it's like, why can I give this to somebody and they'll give me something? Can you answer that question? And I said to myself, no, I have no idea why money is worth anything at all. So that was extremely freeing. And I said, well, this is great because I can hear all these different perspectives about why money is worth anything at all. And if you can answer that question and you can answer why is a stock worth anything at all? Why would somebody buy one? What's it doing for me? Well, why should someone else buy it for me at a higher price later? Why would that make any sense? And there are a lot of people who have been in school for business who cannot give you a really clear answer to that question. It's, it's surprising. So if you already come from a background where you don't know any of this stuff, you are in a place of, I think, power because you're a blank slate And you can ask these questions from a place of curiosity and everything that you learn will be novel and you'll make incredible gains in the beginning. And it's one of the most fun times when you're learning something is in the beginning when you can see your knowledge go from zero to, oh, I can answer that question competently now. So I would say make it an interest. You know, you're never going to do well with your health if you don't make it an interest. You're never going to do well with your finances if you don't make it an interest. You're never going to do well with audio if you don't make it an interest. So. A, make it an interest. B, realize you're in a great place when you can have no qualms about admitting you know nothing because then you can learn more than anyone. And also just recognize that if you don't get the financial picture together, you're not going to be able to do the things you really want to do. 
And I think that's what finances are ultimately about. They're not about money. It's about the freedom to do the things you want to do, to say no to the things you don't want to do, to say yes to the things you do want to do. And, you know, money and finances are a tool for that. Joel Hamilton said it to me this way once. He said, you know, the money is almost like a report card where if I see that I'm doing worse, you know, at the end of every month, you know, that's, that's a bad grade. Like if the bank account is going way down, if the income is way down, my expenses are way up, that's just a report card saying, how are you doing? And you're not being a good steward of resources or your time or other people's time if less and less money is coming in and more and more is going out. That's feedback on to a degree how well are you doing. Now that said, obviously money is not the be all end all judge of how well you're doing. There are some things that you can't really put a price on or some things that are more important to you than getting additional money. Obviously, mm -hmm. that's true for everyone. That's true for Warren Buffett, who is a multi-billionaire. There are things to him that are more important than having another billion dollars, right? And obviously it can be true in your life too. There are things more important to you than money, but getting that part of your life together allows you to just be more of who you are and do the things you want to do more. And I got to tell you, I'm not always perfect about it. There are times about my, I'm never perfect about it. There are times in my life where I'm not paying as much attention to it. And I look again later and I say, you know what, since I'm not looking at that, it's not doing as well as it should be. And then there are times where I pay more attention to it and it does better. But then I get my focus taken away from other things that are also important to me. Maybe my family or new creative projects or my hobbies or whatever they are. So there's a back and forth. You can't be all things all the time, but I think it's one of those things in your life you have to take care of to live the kind of life you want to. You got to take care of your body. You got to take care of your mind. You got to take care of your finances. You got to take care of your career. You got to take care of your relationships. All of those things are just part of what life is made out of. And the finances are almost like a garden. You can get it into a good place and the garden will look good maybe for the rest of the year and you don't have to pay too much attention to it. But if you stop paying attention for a while, you're going to look back and you're like, oh man, there's rats and that used to be a plant and now it's not. And... <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked about the future self. I feel that, and I've often admitted this many, many times, that I'm a late bloomer when it comes to fiscal responsibility. Mm -hmm. And it's really the crux of what started the Working Class Audio podcast. But right. I feel that if our peers are fiscally responsible, then they can make better decisions about their audio careers and ultimately what they want to do. And they have to think about their future self. Where do you want to be in 10 years? Totally. And if 10 years down the road, you are $100,000 in debt because you thought buying up a bunch of vintage gear was the great idea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I just don't think that's going to work for people. Yeah, I hear you. There is what has been referred to as the universal law of prosperity, where you must produce more than you consume. If you do that, you'll be okay. And the buying all the vintage gear, that is consumption. And maybe it is a type of consumption that can be strategic or wise, potentially within moderation. But you got to balance it with, it, for every dollar that I'm spending in the studio, is it likely to bring me back more than a dollar? And you have to convince yourself, be your own worst critic on this. Or if you have trouble being your own worst critic, find someone who will be that for you and just justify it. Say, I'm going to spend $500 on this because I think over the long term, I'm likely to make back more than that. And you know, with you getting your first microphone for doing a podcast, maybe you didn't have a dedicated podcast microphone. Maybe there's something you had to do to start doing a podcast. And maybe it only cost a few hundred bucks, but then 
years later, there's all these thousands of dollars that re of revenue that came in from it off sponsorships, things like that. I mean, we bought a camera for Sonic Scoop that I did the first video blogs on back in 2015. It cost us seven, $800. But the thousands of dollars that have been returned to us from having bought that camera, I mean, it's amazing. So that is some of the biggest, best investments you can make are in your own business. But you can't do them just because you think it would be a thing that's cool to have. I mean, sometimes renting is a better decision when it comes to certain things. There's companies out there, especially if you're in New York or California, that'll rent you a vintage mic for that important session at a mind-bogglingly low cost because they're insured. And if you steal the thing, they have your credit card number and all that. So it's like surprisingly cheap. So you don't necessarily need to have all this stuff. So you just got to think about ways where the dollars that you spend are going to come back to you. I always preach diversification to my audience about doing different things. Maybe you're a mastering engineer, but maybe there's an opportunity there to do audio books with people or some other kind of thing or do live sound. Yeah. Sonic Scoop is has really being the director of content and publishing for you. That has been a form of diversification, has it not? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was one of the things that allowed me to get out of that office job and back into the world of just doing audio was I, you know, I said to myself, I had a year to think about it because I, I basically just gave up on freelancing for that one year because I just want to do this and just think about what I was going to do next. And one of the things I said to myself is I've had to do it all over again. One of the things I always wanted to try was writing. I, I think I always could have tried to write. So that was a potential way to diversify income streams where if I was having a bad month or whatever freelancing, maybe I could scale up this other side and it also turned out to be something that suits my personality really well, because if I go a week without going deep with words and ideas, I get antsy and I probably turn into an annoying person. And I, like, I need to have these deep, deep dives at least once a week, whether it's a podcast or whether it's an article or whether it's producing video content. So I need to get that itch scratched in me anyway. And I have that verbal aptitude anyway. But then if I also were to go a week without working on music without working on audio without, I'd also get antsy and weird and I'd feel like a part of me was missing. So I am a person where, I mean, words and ideas and music and sounds are the two most interesting driving forces in my life and have been since I was very, very young. And if I wasn't doing something with both of those, I wouldn't be as happy or fulfilled of a person. And there's so many different ways I could have done that. I could have become an audio book engineer, right? Recording and editing other people's audio books. That's one way to do it. You know, there's so many different ways uh, to go about it. That's the one that made sense to me and the one where the opportunities presented themselves where the universe just kind of came together. I met a guy named David Weiss, co-founder of Sonic Scoop at a party. And we were talking, I mentioned that, you know, I always wanted to try writing. He said, well, why don't you write for Sonic Scoop? So I did. I did the first story for free. I said, I want to do three stories for free for you guys. And I feel like after that, I should either be good enough at writing and they'll have good, a good enough response that I should start charging. Or if not, then it's just not going to work out. And it's just a pipe dream. And after doing three articles, they said, those were great. Those were some of the three best pieces of site uh, content on the site in recent years. Can you do more? Can you do once a month? One a month, we'll pay you. And I said, sure, that's, that's amazing. And then those did well. And they said, these are some of the best performing pieces of content on the site. Can you do two a month? We'll, we'll pay you more. And I said, sure. And they said, can you do three a month? And I said, sure. And they said, can you do four a month? And I said, sure. And then it, by that time, it turned into a, a significant ongoing and in a way more reliable part of my income than 
mixing or recording, which it could be more feast or famine. So I had in my life a kind of a cornerstone of income where I knew I was going to have at least this amount of income. I'd be able to pay for groceries and this and that. I still had to hustle with all the other audio stuff. And then I started getting some other gigs that were a little bit more steady, maybe a live sound gig where I was doing this night every week or a college teaching gig where I was doing this day every week. So I had a few things and then doing audio around them. And then at that point, I started mastering and then enough income came in from mastering that I was able to stop doing live sound and I was able to stop teaching in colleges and stuff like that. So is that same kind of progression where you set up a kind of core day jobby kind of stable thing, ideally something you really like and are good at. And then if there are aspects of it that you don't like as much, you start trying to replace them with your ideal work. And I guess I did it again at another point in my life. But that continual process of of growth and figuring out what you're best suited to do, what you enjoy most, and those things that are really a drag and getting rid of those. I mean, hopefully you can do that many times in your life. Yeah, you've taken the words right out of my mouth. Literally, it's I think that that diversification strategy is about establishing a foundation that pays the bills, and then you identify the things that are not enjoyable and you figure out ways to replace those pieces of income or those those slices of income I should say. Yeah. And eventually arriving at in in my book it's it's three it's a trifecta of things you enjoy doing and they all provide a source of income. If you're an audio person like we are, they all kind of are related. Yeah. So we're almost out of time. Are there any things that we should touch on that we have not? One of the big takeaways that I've gotten from studying some really successful producers and engineers out there, and something that I'm trying to integrate more and more into my life, is this idea of assistance, of having people help you in your work and offloading some of the tasks that you do that you know that anyone could do and someone charging less than you could do. Finding someone to help you with those tasks you don't like doing and that really aren't the big value adds that you have to offer the world and paying someone to do them. And I I guess growing up when I was very young, I thought that was kind of weird because it was like cheating or something, you know, to have an assistant do a lot of work, you know, setting up your session or doing whatever. But it's not. First of all, it's giving an opportunity to a newer, younger person who wants to learn stuff and, you know, have new career opportunities, but also frees you up and allows you to do those things where you really have the most to offer. So it's, a, it's like a win for everybody. You get to have a more enjoyable life because you're not doing those things that you really don't like doing and wish you didn't have to do. You're enriching someone else's life by giving them career opportunities and money that they need to survive and all that. And you're able to kind of serve your clients, your audience even better by putting your mind and your attention on those things that you're uniquely in a place to do well or to do better than average at the very least. So that's something I'm trying to integrate more and more into my life, into into my business. It's hard to do as a mastering engineer, but for those people who are mixing and who are recording, even if they think, oh, I can't afford to pay some assistant, you know, I don't know. What if you took a little bit less on each mix that you did, but you had someone set it up for you, do all of the stuff that makes you so worn out by the time that you start moving faders and you take a little bit less on, but now you can do more mixes. You have more bandwidth for more mixes and you have more bandwidth left for going out and finding new clients 
because you're not spending this time setting up the whole session and doing all these tasks you have to do again and again and putting it in the same place. Maybe that takes you an hour. My goodness, what you could do with an hour of sending emails, making phone calls, an extra hour to go out to a show and network with a new band or whatever it is. So that's something that I've been trying to integrate more into my life on the business end. I have to keep on telling myself to do it. Do you find that difficult when you're working at home and you're in New Hampshire? And I don't know if there's a plethora of audio professionals around or potential audio professionals that you could tap into? Well, one of the great things about today is this internet device we're talking through. And I just got to be more and more creative about thinking about more and more ways. But maybe at this point, I'm not being creative enough and thinking that, hey, there are, I mean, I, I live in a college town. Oh, yeah. There are young people here, people who are interested in the arts. So maybe I'm not being creative by not even thinking of the local angle and my mind immediately going to how can I get more people into the business who I'll be working with remotely. And the vast majority of them are probably in New York and California if they're interested in audio and all that. So that's been the route that I've been taking. But now you're making me think, Matt, maybe I should be building an audio scene right here in New Hampshire. That's right. The great New Hampshire audio scene is about to begin. <laughs> In, yeah, as yeah. Of the, as of the airing of this episode, I want to officially trademark it right now. That I want, uh, if I were to open a recording studio here, it would be called Live Free or Die Recording. <laughs> I shouldn't have said this on your podcast. Now, now someone else is going to steal it. So I hereby officially invoke that I've copyrighted that name. I've got to go out and buy the domain immediately. Oh my goodness. Maybe I should actually cut that part out. Now someone else is going to buy the domain before I can. When does this go out? Monday? Maybe I have time to buy the domain. We'll see. You have time. You definitely <laughs> right. have time. Just to wrap it up, I will say that I think, as you said, giving up a little bit of money on a gig to involve another person, to pass on some knowledge, to give some experience to, I think there's great value in that, especially in this day and age when we do not have as many opportunities to for mentorship or training in person. If you're doing, say, a remote recording gig and you're trying to budget things, budget a little extra money even if it's got to come out of your pocket or your your cut to involve another person because it's great to have the help it's great to have another set of ears and eyes on a situation that might catch something that you know maybe you're tired at the end of the day and that young person you involve says hey did you know that you're not in record over there <laughs> yeah. oh yeah yeah i knew that yeah thanks good eye good eye though <laughs> <laughs> I was testing you. You get a raise now. Yeah, totally, man. And there are certain places where it's harder to make it work. Maybe if someone can give me a creative idea for how I could use assistance and mastering, I'm drawing a blank. There's really, I feel like that I have to do. But within Sonic Scoop, there's a million things I'm thinking that I should be, I, if only I could get the right person in there to, to help us with this admin thing or this editorial duty or sourcing these new stories or whatever. So there, there's so many possibilities for it that I wish I could, that, that I should take more and more advantage of. But there's some things that are, are harder to do that with, but you just got to be creative. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right. Pretty affordable. Head on over to CaliAudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Just for the audience, if you want to learn more about what Justin's up to, obviously you will find him over at Sonic Scoop, but 
You can also check out his website, which we'll put in the show notes, justincoletti.com, which has a plethora. That's two times I've used plethora in this interview. (laughs) I wouldn't have known if you didn't tell me. A plethora of, there's three, (laughs) of information about him and the things he's doing with Sonic Scoop and everything else. But Justin, really great to talk with you. It's a pleasure. And I I know we're going to meet in person at some point. I hope so. You can be at AES or NAM. Maybe I'll see you at one of those. I'll see it, Nam. I'm sure we'll see each other from across the trade show floor and we'll point at each other and go, yes. I know that guy. And I'll give one last pitch. This is my shameless plug. Absolutely. For all two people who have made it this far into the podcast and have listened to me for this long yakking with Matt, clearly you like listening to me act. I have two, not one, but two full-length courses, Mixing Breakthroughs and Mastering Demystified. If you have enjoyed me talking for an hour but you want me in a more structured format where I'm really trying to fill your ear holes with like actual things that will improve your craft at audio, check out mixingbreakthroughs.com or masteringdemystified.com. 100% satisfaction guarantee. How did I do, Matt? That's great. Do you have an affiliate link for that? Yes. If you really want to check this out, I'll tell you what. We will give a... Spe- Can I do this? A special discount code for listeners of the, uh, the podcast? Yeah, please stoke my listeners out. Okay, we will get you a discount code, a special 25% off if you enter WCA25. That, again, is WCA25. Click on the special affiliate link, and you can get uh, Mixing Breakthroughs or Mastering Demystify for 25% off. This deal is only good this month, though, the month of September. So I'll give you till October 6th. We'll program it in. So I I do that because I want to light a fire under your butt. So either do it or don't. And I got to tell you, if you take mixing breakthroughs, if you take, you will absolutely get better at mixing if you actually take the course and do the exercise in it. There's no question in my mind. And then Mastering Demystified is literally everything that I know about mastering. I hope they're useful. If not, just ask for your money back and you'll get it. When are you going to do your course on uh, Surviving Prison? Oh, man. I think I'll have to go back a few more times. Well, technically not prison. Technically jail. So I don't want to seem that hard. It was jail and it's for riding a bicycle on a sidewalk, which is about the lamest, wimpiest thing you can go to jail for. So, Justin, great to meet you. Thanks for coming on the show. Everybody, justincoletti.com and also Sonic Scoop. Be sure and check that out. And be sure to check out the links to get your discount on Justin's courses by using the code WCA25. Thanks for being here, Justin. We'll chat later. Wonderful. Thank you, Matt. Okay, take care. Justin Coletti here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Want to thank, of course, everybody that helped out. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Mr. Chuck Smith for his lovely voice there at the top of the show. Make sure you head on over to workingclassaudio.com and sign up on our email list so you can stay on top of new shows that are coming out or head on over to one of your favorite podcast aggregators and uh, subscribe to the show. That's it for us. I'll see you next week. Until then, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. 
many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 